Welcome to My Pancreas is Broken 2, the podcast where I, Tommy Young, a type 1 diabetic, help you navigate the scary and confusing world of your new diabetes diagnosis and give you tips and tricks to make sure you can live your best life. Today, we're heading back in time to the discovery that allows us to live the life we choose, the magical mystery liquid known as insulin. Diabetes has been around for a very long time. Insulin, though, was a relatively new discovery. Despite always having been around in our bodies as part of our pancreatic system, we of course had no way to know of it. It was thanks to the work of a German medical student in 1869, Paul Langerhan, that we discovered it. He identified clumps of tissue in the pancreas with an unknown purpose, which he called islands of clear cells. These would later be known as the islets of Langerhans. Twenty years later, German physicians Oskar Minkowski and Josef von Mehring removed the pancreas from a healthy dog for a different test. During this test, they found sugar in the urine of the dog, linking the pancreas and diabetes for the very first time. Twelve years after this, it was an American this time, scientist Eugene Lindsay Opie, who discovered that when the islets of Langerhans were destroyed, it would cause diabetes mellitus, or type 1 diabetes. This worldwide conundrum leads us to the small town of London, Ontario in the year 1920. In a small house sitting on the corner of Adelaide Street and Queens Avenue was the home of a 29-year-old World War I medic, a captain of the Army Medical Corps. He had been wounded in combat, awarded the Military Cross for continuing to assist soldiers for 16 hours afterwards, and once the war was over, returned to Toronto to finish his surgical training. Dr. Frederick Grant Banting had recently finished a stint as the resident surgeon at Sick Kids Toronto, and unable to gain a permanent position, had moved to London to set up a medical practice. On one fateful night, he was preparing to give a lecture at the University of Western Ontario on the pancreas, and while reading articles to prepare himself, had his interest peaked on the topic of diabetes. On Halloween night, 1920, at the tender hour of two in the morning, Banting awoke from his bed and wrote 25 words on a cue card at his desk. This card detailed his idea, the idea that the islets of Langerhans could be saved and extracted to continue creating insulin. Sorry. Speaking of diabetes, my pump has gone off. The following spring, he traveled to the University of Toronto to discuss this with J.J.R. McLeod, the professor of physiology at the university. Despite his skepticism, McLeod provided Banting with lab space, as well as two undergraduates to use as lab assistants. Banting, however, only needed one, and so the two undergrads, Charles Best and Clark Noble, flipped a coin. Best won, took the first shift, and unfortunately for Noble, stayed with Banting for the entire summer. The pair worked for months using diabetic dogs, and on July 30, 1921, successfully isolated an extract from the islets of a healthy dog. They injected this extract into a diabetic one, and within an hour, noted that the blood sugar levels in the dog had dropped by 40%. They presented this to McLeod, who moved them into a bigger, better lab, began paying Banting for research grants, and invited biochemist James Collip to join the team, as Banting had come up with the idea of using fetal calf pancreases to draw islatin from. This proved to be a much more efficient method of gathering islatin, or as it would soon become known, insulin, and soon they had a much more stable extract. They had made so much progress that in January of 1922, they were able to give an injection of insulin to a human rather than a dog. 13-year-old Leonard Thompson, a patient at Toronto General Hospital, received the first dose, but unfortunately it was still very impure and he had a severe allergic reaction. Collip, 
undeterred, spent the next 12 days and nights purifying the ox pancreas extract, and on January 23rd, Thompson was injected a second time. This injection was a success, eliminating Thompson's glycosuria without any glaring side effects, and Thompson was able to make a near full recovery from diabetes, a condition that had, to that point, a near certain chance of mortality. Collip, though, eventually left the team, having never worked well with Banting or Best. Eli Lilly and Company, a pharmaceutical firm in Indiana, offered assistance not long after, and their head chemist George B. Walden eventually discovered a way for insulin to be produced, pure, at a large quantity, something that Banting and Best had struggled with. This finally allowed insulin to be sold to the general public. On January 15, 1923, nearly a year after the first successful injection of insulin, Banting, Best, Collip, McLeod, and a Canadian company, Connaught Laboratories, patented the process for collecting and purifying insulin, and sold the patent to the University of Toronto for the sum of $1, approximately $18 in today's money. This agreement was made so that nobody else could patent insulin. Anybody could prepare the extract, as the details to do so would be made completely public, but no one could monopolize insulin. It was a life-saving medicine, completely available to the public. This is My Pancreas is Broken Too with Tommy Young. In the 101 years since the first successful injection of insulin, many different types of insulin have come and gone. New groups attempt to create a better version. Some survive, some fail. It all started with what is known as Toronto insulin. Named after the university it was created in, Toronto insulin was the baseline for all future insulin developments. The first insulin extract to be injected into humans the first to be produced commercially, and for many, the only reliably available insulin. Eli Lilly tried their hand at creating a type of insulin as well, but it was not available in large enough quantities or a stable enough production. Potency varied by up to 25% per lot. Eventually, Lilly did develop an isoelectric precipitation method of extracting animal pancreas insulin, which decreased the variation to 10%. In 1923, a physician from the Denmark University of Copenhagen named August Kroch traveled to Europe and met with Banting and McLeod to discuss bringing insulin to Europe, as his wife had diabetes. With authorization from the University of Toronto, he brought insulin back to Scandinavia with him and formed the Nordisk Insulin Laboratory. Later known as Novo Nordisk, they were crucial in insulin development. Sometime in the 1930s, a Danish chemist named H.C. Hagedorn added protamine to the insulin extract discovering it prolonged the action of insulin over a longer period of time. A Toronto duo, Scott and Fisher, prolonged it further by adding zinc to the protamine insulin. This new protamine zinc insulin lasted over a day, by comparison to Toronto insulin, which only lasted a handful of hours, and it helped to maintain blood sugars over a much longer period. This was incredibly important, as diabetics had to continuously inject with insulin every few hours. This new, long-acting insulin allowed them to only worry about injecting insulin to counter food intake when needed, rather than every hour or every two or three hours. Much later, in 1978, David Goodall and Genentech, an American biotech corporation, created a new type of human DNA insulin using chains found in E. coli. This new type of rDNA insulin, which they called Humulin when commercialized in 1982, was split into Humulin-R and Humulin-N. 
The R version, for rapid, was a short-acting insulin, while the N, standing for NPH, was an intermediate-acting insulin. Humulin R and Humulin N could be used in tandem, where you inject a long-lasting N dose as a basal, while using R to bolus for any food intake. You're listening to My Pancreas is Broken Too. I'm Tommy Young. That's a lot of technical speak, so let's break it down a little bit simpler. Today, there are many different types of modern insulin, made by many different manufacturers. Some are designed for insulin pumps, some are designed to be injected, and there was even an inhaled insulin, developed by Sanofi Aventis and Pfizer in 2006. However, it was bulky, unwieldy, and added no benefit over injected insulin, which was taken off the shelves in 2008. Though many different types of insulin exist, they can be broken down into five main groups depending on their lasting times. These are rapid, short, intermediate, long, and ultra-long acting insulins. Rapid acting insulin is used at the beginning of a meal as it has the shortest onset time, generally activating within four to 20 minutes of injection. Rapid acting insulin can be broken down into three major groups. Insulin aspart, including Fiasp, Novorapid, and TrueRapi, insulin glulosine, like Epidra, and insulin Lispro, like Humalog and Admalog. I personally have used Novorapid with my insulin pumps for many, many years, but I've also used Fiasp when I switched over to insulin pens. Short-acting insulin is the other type of bolus insulin, though it generally has a longer onset time than rapid-acting, typically between 15 and 30 minutes. It is important to remember to pre-bolus for any meals if you use short-acting insulin, as your blood sugar may spike if you bolus as you begin eating. By the time the insulin is active, the food will have already begun to raise your sugars. Short-acting insulin has two main types, a shorter-lasting version like Humulin R and Novolin Toronto that will last as little as 6 hours, or a longer-lasting version like Entusity, which can last from 17 to 24 hours. Intermediate-acting insulin is a shorter-lasting basal insulin, typically requiring a double dose, once in the morning and once before bed. Insulin NPH like Humulin N and Novolin NPH fall into this category, taking 1 to 3 hours to activate but lasting up to 18 hours. The only insulin that should appear cloudy, intermediate-acting insulin is good for managing basal rates through injections, not insulin pumps. Long-acting insulin is a once-daily basal, taking up to 90 minutes to activate while remaining active for 16 to 24 hours. Long-acting insulin comes in two different forms, insulin Dedimir like Levimir and insulin Glargine like Lantus or Balsagar. While on daily injections, I used Levimir and Lantus both for a short period of time, but eventually decided on another form of long-acting insulin. Symptoms can always differ between diabetics, but some people can feel a burn under the skin while using insulin glargine like Lantus. Generally though, long-acting insulin is very widely available, and many type 1 diabetics using insulin injectors like pens find Lantus or Levimir to work the best. The final type, ultra-long-acting insulin, is a much longer-lasting form of insulin. Also typically taken once daily, it takes the same amount of time as regular long-acting insulin to activate, up to 90 minutes, but can last upwards of 30 hours, sometimes even up to 42 hours. Ultra-long-acting insulin falls into two main categories as well, insulin glargine, like Tugeo, and insulin Degladec, like Traceba. For my brief period on multiple daily injections, or MDIs, I did try Tugeo, but ended up settling on Traceba as my long-acting insulin for much of that year. 
There is also mixed insulin. Some of the above types can be mixed and some cannot, so you have to be careful you're receiving two compatible types of insulin if you're using a basal insulin as well as a shorter acting insulin. However, if you're unsure, you can also get pre-mixed insulin with rapid and intermediate acting insulin. Some major examples include Humulin 3070 and Novolin 3070, which are both 30% regular short acting and 70% NPH intermediate insulin. Humalog Mix 25, which is 25% Lispro and 75% Lispro Protaminate, which is an intermediate insulin. Humalog Mix 50, which is a 50-50 split compared to the 25-75. And Novo Mix 30, which is 30% Aspart, which is a rapid, and 70% Aspart Protaminate, an intermediate. To summarize, rapid or short-acting bolus insulin has short onset time but a short duration. Long or ultra-long-acting basal insulin has a long onset time but a much longer duration. And intermediate insulin is a mixture of both, with a long onset time but a decent duration as well. When choosing insulin, consult with your doctor or pediatrician to make sure you're getting the correct insulin. Not every type or brand of insulin will work the same for everyone. And if you're having problems with your insulin, it's not working fast enough, or not providing enough of a change, you may have to change the type of insulin you use. Make sure that the insulin you choose is also compatible with the way you inject. For example, insulin pumps should use rapid-acting insulin instead of long-acting. Thank you so much for listening to My Pancreas is Broken Too. I'm Tommy Young, and I talked about a lot of very scientific topics with pretty big words on today's episode. So if you need any further information about anything I talk about on this show, you can reach me on Twitter at Tom Young Radio. I also highly encourage you to check out any of these resources for more information. Diabetes Canada at www.diabetes.ca the Cleveland Clinic article on insulin that I will link in the episode description, or the Banting House website, bantinghousenhs.ca. If you are ever in the London, Ontario area, stop by the Banting House as well, the original birthplace of insulin. It was the home of Banting when he broke down that discovery on a Halloween night. They have a very knowledgeable staff, give guided tours of the house, and also have the Flame of Hope, a commemorative torch unveiled by Queen Elizabeth I in 1989 that will continue to permanently stay lit until a cure for diabetes is developed. I hope you learned something new about insulin on this episode of My Pancreas is Broken Too. Next episode, I'll teach you a little more about the lingo of diabetes care, what some of the terms mean, and how to use them to manage your diabetes more effectively. Thank you so much for listening along.